It's the World This Week. The World This Week in partnership with The Daily Beast. Joining us from London, Nico Hines, world editor of The Daily Beast. How are things by the Thames? Things are very well. We're, uh, we're missing you in advance on a Friday night. Oh, well, thank you so much, Nico. Vivian Walt, Paris correspondent for Time magazine, is amongst us. How are things with you? protesting that you're leaving the uh, show. Oh, I'm not going far, so don't worry. <laughs> uh, a columnist, uh, Philippe Moreau Chevrolet, Hi. is here as well. How are you, sir? Fine. We don't retire that early in France, as you know. <laughs> we've, you know we discussed they'll, they'll that keep already. Busy. They're going to keep you me busy. You should have listened. I promise you they're going to keep me busy. Lila Jacinto, senior editor at France24.com. I'll be seeing you on Monday, by the way. Uh, yes, we will. But, you know, talking about retirement, we've kind of grown, grown old together <laughs> over here. Right here. Yes, how time flies. Uh, same Studio B of uh, France 24, the date 2009. We can uh, show you uh, a screenshot, perhaps. Uh, it's old, it's grainy, but you can make out a Lila Jacinto who hasn't aged a bit in 15 years, <laughs> which is quite unfair. Uh, next week, yes, new, new host, uh, new look. Uh, next Friday, Gavin Lee takes the reins at uh, The World This Week. But you'll see me again uh, in the chair this coming Monday in the France 24 debate. Later in this handover edition, we'll be asking the panel just how much the world has changed in 15 years. First, though, is there no end in sight to war in Gaza. The week began with a flurry of diplomacy to seal a truce before Ramadan, but that's now gone quiet, what with more than 100 civilians killed uh, after a melee surrounding an aid convoy delivery in Gaza City. We were on Al-Rashid Street and suddenly tanks attacked us. There were parcels packed with aid Many people, desperate because of the lack of food, the lack of flour and of aid, headed to the sea to get more help. It was chaos. There were crowds of people and the occupation forces fired on us. There were so many people killed and so many wounded. Some began violently pushing and even trampling other Gazans to death, looting the humanitarian supplies. The tank commander decided to retreat, to avoid harm to the thousands of Gazans that were there. Okay, so at the outset and before any proper investigation, we have conflicting versions, but does it matter? No. If <laughs> I think actually no. The fact of this massacre is just such a stark um, representation of the level of desperation. I mean, you have people who have not had aid deliveries in weeks at this point. There's a famine setting in in Gaza. Of course there's going to be absolute pandemonium of people just trying to grab whatever they can, whatever they can find. Um, the fact that they opened fire is, uh, I think, just... It's an horrendous sort of... Um, exhibition, I guess, of the, the kind of emotions that are running riot and the level of hostility that has set in and, and frankly, the kind of like lack of understanding of what people are going through. Yeah, whether or not uh, it uh, was um, a situation where, it was, uh, where, they, where they ruthlessly gunned down people or whether it was scared soldiers uh, who panicked. The point is, it happened on Israel's watch. 
it did happen. And there are so many things, uh, you know, that we have to bear in mind. As you said, famine. The WFP said 40% of uh, Gazans face the risk of, of uh, famine. And uh, with children under the age of two, one in six uh, Gazan babies is acutely malnourished. Uh, and what this incident showed us yesterday, because, you know, I was in the newsroom and it was very hard to establish what exactly was happening. But among the things that struck me was that it was Israeli soldiers delivering the aid. So the UN was not aware of this aid distribution. And this goes to show that uh, nearly four months into this war, there is no administration in Gaza. Uh, UNRWA, the UN agency that looks after the Palestinian refugees, uh, is not operating because they are facing uh, an investigation. Israel accuses 12 uh, UNRWA members of having participated in the October 7th attacks. So a lot of countries stopped their funding. And what this basically goes to show, one, the lack of humanitarian aid that is going in. There used to be 500 trucks daily going into Gaza before the October 7th attacks. That came down to around 90 daily uh, after the attacks. But in the last few weeks of Jan and early Feb, it was down to 50 trucks. And, you know, and we having images of, of Gazans eating cattle food, eating cactus, uh, cacti that were originally fences. What is this happening? This is a starvation of our populace happening. So, no, this, I think this is going to be pretty fundamental in how this conflict that has been going on since last year is going to move forward. Are the Israelis quick to qualify it as a tragedy? Uh, the U.S. Thursday still saying it was piecing together what led to the bloodbath. Two competing versions of what happened. I don't have an answer yet. Are you worried about the complications negotiations? I know, Will. Are you worried it will complicate negotiations? I know it will, says uh, uh, Joe Biden over the sound of that uh, helicopter. Uh, Nico Hines, uh, for Joe Biden, uh, the optics of U.S.-supplied Israeli troops killing Palestinian civilians, most unwelcome, especially because... In the swing state of Michigan, home to a sizable Arab American community, on Tuesday, uh, 13,000 people uh, marked their ballots as undecided in the Democratic primary. That's right. There's a growing protest movement in the U.S., and obviously it won't actually affect Biden's uh, prospects of being re-elected as the Democratic nominee for president um, come November. But it does show how seriously people are taking it. And this is exactly the sort of thing that Biden wouldn't want to see. And what's become very clear is that he has lost control of Netanyahu, if he ever had any control over him. And the, the Americans are not being able to get what they want to happen on the ground. However, you know, this stalling and covering for them is not going to do him any favours whatsoever and it's not going to do the peace process any favours whatsoever because it's all very well to say there are two conflicting events, of, uh, versions of, of the events that took place this week, but the very best case scenario from the Israeli PR spin point of view is that there were thousands of people who they have driven to starvation, desperately trying to get food for their families, and they opened fire on them creating such a panic that hundreds of people or scores of people have been killed. I mean, if that's the best case scenario, it's, it's, it's hardly kind of two sides, you know, who's, on, who's in the right, who's in the wrong. You know, this is an absolute 
disaster that has been taken place, not just on Israel's watch, but perpetrated by Israel. And Biden, to cover for them in press conferences like that, um, is, is pretty distasteful. And if you look at what happened at the UN, they tried to pass an emergency Security Council resolution yesterday saying that it was because of the Israelis opening fire that this, um, that this tragedy, this massacre uh, took place. And of course, once again, it was the Americans vetoing and blocking to make sure that the UN could not condemn it properly. All right, uh, there was a hawkish speech uh, by the uh, uh, Israeli prime minister in the wake of the Gaza City bloodbath, with criticism mounting Benjamin Netanyahu uh, doubling down and saying the Americans are on his side. Today I am being pushed, together with my friends, to end the war before we achieve all its goals. These pressures are increasing. Our efforts bear fruit in the most important political arena, which is, of course, the United States. This week, the study by the Harvard-Harris Institute was published in the U.S. The study states that 82% of the American public supports Israel. A bit of fact-checking here, Philippe Rochevole, because there was a recent AP poll that showed 50% of U.S. adults, this is in January, um, said they believed Israel's actions had gone too far, and that was up from 40% in November. So I guess you can make, you can point to whatever poll you want. You know about polls, don't you? Yeah, you can <laughs> use the polls whatever, in whatever direction you want to use them. The, the, the fact is the, uh, the battle for the public opinion has been begun uh, from the start. I mean, it started on October 7th, and it's never stopped since. And it's mainly a battle of who will win the public opinion. And it's it's led by the two parties, Hamas and Israel. It's also led by third parties that are interested in that, like Russia, for instance. They are playing, overplaying the, you know, the disruptions in civil societies. Uh, they have an interest, a vested interest in doing that. So it's a very complicated game. But Israel is losing the battle because uh, it doesn't provide uh, people with any kind of a solution. You know, war is never a, not a solution, but at least it brought the feeling that there would be an end to something, and we don't see any end. The hostages are not released, and uh, the war is not ceasing. And uh, the more the war lasts, the more death we will see coming. That's normal. If we if were to be very cynical, Israel, uh, Philippe Mojavale is saying, is losing the battle, Vivian Walt. Uh, but is Benjamin Netanyahu losing the battle? Who outlasts who? Him or Joe Biden? Who stays longer in office? Well... <laughs> At this point, possibly Netanyahu, um, if this war goes on too long. You know, we talk about Michigan um, and how many Americans actually support Israel or oppose what's going on. We don't really, all the Americans don't really matter. A very, very tiny number of Americans matter right now in this U.S. presidential election. But Michigan happens to be one of Michigan, those states. Absolutely, is a swing state absolutely crucial? Uh, Hillary Clinton lost it by 12,000 votes or something, and hence lost the presidential election. And it could well happen to Joe Biden. So we, it's extremely perilous territory, and Netanyahu sits in the middle of it. And I think Nico put his finger on it in saying that Biden simply has no clout anymore 
Um, and that's been clear for a few months now. Mm. It's really been clear since fairly early in the war. By the way, Nico, the war in Gaza also an issue for the Labour Party. Uh, leftist politician George Galloway blasting Keir Starmer for being too soft after Galloway won a by-election in Rochdale Thursday that signals his return uh, to Westminster. Uh, is this going to be uh, something that sort of poisons what had been predicted to be a, a landslide win by Labour come the fall or early next year? Well, I, I think what's important to do is to try and draw some distinctions here. So um, there was a, a what we call a by-election, so a one-off um, election because the incumbent MP who was a Labour MP had actually died. Um, so they had to find a replacement for him. Um, but what's happened is that this Israel-Gaza conflict has shown the ways in which politics and the political debate all over the world is being poisoned and um, made more and more extreme. So what happened was the Labour uh, candidate, Azhar Ali, um, was caught saying in public that um, he believed Israel had allowed October the 7th to happen so that they could get their revenge on Gaza, that it was a sort of almost a false flag operation, which obviously is a ridiculous thing to have said. Um, it also turned out that he had made some anti-Semitic remarks about Jewish journalists um, forcing, um, forcing these kind of issues into the papers. And so the Labour Party had to kind of disavow their own candidate, which allowed basically the completely hopeless, toxic Tories to, to run against no Labour candidate, to run against a guy who had been formerly in the Labour Party, but had been accused of being a paedophile um, and had had to leave politics, and against George Galloway, one of the most ludicrous um, and extreme former MPs that there was out there. So the fact that Galloway has won this and he's won it saying it's for Gaza um, is something of a red herring. He would have been crushed by a normal Labour candidate. But because we had this bizarre field, which was decimated by the arguments over Gaza, he, he's ended up victorious. But I don't think we can really draw any conclusions about what's going to happen when we okay, finally but, but get we, a general We heard election. Philippe Morochevrolet there talking uh, about the, the war for global public opinion. And it's interesting to note that after pro-Gaza nods that were heard in acceptance speeches at last week's César Film Awards here in Paris, the Berlin Film Festival following in kind. And of course, we're here standing up for life, a ceasefire now. We're against, obviously, the genocide, and we're with all of our comrades in solidarity. Thank you. Thank you. Direct action by Guillaume and and we heard several other speeches uh, like it. Uh, the German government has even opened an investigation into what it calls, quote, one-sided comments at the awards ceremony. Popular tabloid Bild calling out the culture minister, Claudia Roth, and Berlin Mayor Kai Wegner for clapping uh, during some of those speeches in support uh, of Gaza. So, again, it's, it's what Philippe was talking about, Lila, about this, this. It's been nearly five months, and this battle of global opinion is being lost, he says, by Israel. And you can trust the Germans to make everything about Germany. Uh, you know, this something is happening in Gaza and they start, you know, re-examining. You know, the world is getting a bit fatigued by the German narrative of the German guilt. Uh, and in, in the German media, it is all about who said what, 
what is all this anti-Semitism debate? A lot of number of people in the arts field have lost their jobs. Uh, there was some, uh, there was an art uh, friend of mine, actually, uh, you know, an art historian who drew parallels between Zionism and Hindutva, something completely arcane, academic, was, you know, was shamed, was called an anti-Semite, Semite, which he's not, uh, you know, and, and it's just astonishing about what is happening in the Middle East suddenly becomes about what's happening to us. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, this conflict goes on, the major player, the U.S. continues with this policy. Uh, it, meanwhile, we have lost the global south. Uh, you know, the same uh, poll that Netanyahu uh, talked about, about 80% of Americans supporting Israel, it shows if you see the age group breakdown, the younger generation is split 50-50%. And as the, as the age groups get older, mm. it shifts in, in favor of Israel. The world is changing. The global South opinion is changing. You can see the way South Africa reacted, India, Brazil, these are now major powers. And the US is looking like, you know, it's saying the wrong things. But India, it doesn't is, a, have, India is actually supporting Israel. Uh, this is true. Uh, Massively. Uh, uh, th this is true. But South Africa and Brazil, and, and with India, it's very yeah, new. But there's no such thing as a global South regarding Israel. Well, there's the BRICS, if we take them as emerging powers. And India is a bit more nuanced. Yes, they are selling weapons to Israel. This is not about India. Uh, but, but public opinion is not that firmly for mm. Israel. Yeah. His funeral turns into a protest. Thousands turning out this Friday to a small church on the outskirts of Moscow to pay their final respects, chanting the name of Alexei Navalny two weeks after the Kremlin critics' southern death in an Arctic prison colony. Some also shouted, you weren't afraid, neither are we, and later, no to war, and Russia without Putin, as well as Russia, uh, be free. Philippe Morochevrolet, uh, in these times when uh, there's uh, censorship rules because of the war in Russia, uh, our cor former correspondent in Moscow saying he was surprised at how high the turnout was of course, this could be a one-off, a last hurrah for the opposition. It's not the last, because eventually Putin will be out of the scene. And Russia is still living, you know. The Orthodox Church, for instance, has been praying in caves for decades during the Soviet regime. And they were there after the Soviet regime collapsed. And the Russian civil society, I'm saying that, I'm a Russian Orthodox myself. The Russian society is used to be living under the radar for most of their time because of that kind of oppressive regimes. But it, the tide is still flowing. The people are still there. They are waiting for the moment when, you know, they can go up in the streets again and protest and do things. They are waiting for that. The, 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 the story, the nice fairy tale that Moscow is displaying of a population that would support Putin is merely a fairy tale. It doesn't exist. We, doesn't have, we don't even have tools or, you know, any kind of measurement that could provide the Kremlin with anything, with, with the support to these ludicrous claims. There is no way to measure the support that the Russian population would display to Putin. It doesn't exist. Is there a degree, though, of wishful thinking when you look at this from the outside, Vivian Waltz? I think so. I, I'm not as optimistic as Philippe. <laughs> I don't know if I'm me, optimistic. But, um, <laughs> it's you know, Russian Russia optimism. still... Two years into the Ukraine war has plenty of resources, plenty of funds. It's, you know, got, if, uh, you know, you might say closer relationships with some of its allies than it did before the Ukraine war. 
And one can't help looking at this funeral and just having this terrible sense of sadness that Navalny chose to go back to Moscow. I mean, how much we needed somebody like that the last two years out of jail, okay, in exile, but out of jail and organizing some kind of global anti-Putin opposition, um, which really exists very in a very fragmented way at this point. But uh, Nico Hines, uh, his widow, Yulia Navalny, she's uh, now abroad, uh, in exile. Um, obviously, she, she's not going to have the charisma he has. And again, she's abroad, like, you know, opponents like Garry Kasparov and people like that. Uh, when you're abroad, how much impact can you have? Yeah, it's extremely difficult. You can't win either way, can you? Because if you're there, um, which is what Navalny decided, then you become a target. And if you're a target in Putin's Russia, it's only a matter of time before you accidentally fall out of a window or um, have a sudden heart seizure for no apparent reason. Or in the most obvious cases, you're sent to a Arctic Circle penal colony um, and they meet your fate there. Um, so that doesn't win you much favour. Um, and as you say, if you're overseas, obviously it's much easier for the Russian media, which is very tightly controlled, to completely cut off any news of you and you can't really build up um, as much of a movement. Although I will say we ran a great piece at the Daily Beast um, a couple of weeks ago by uh, Anna Nemtsova about how for the first time in kind of recent Russian history, she can uh, remember an actual kind of strong uh, exile community building up across different countries in Europe and across the United States where uh, she kind of, her contention is that there's always been reasons for Russians to distrust their neighbors, even abroad and, and for there never to really be a kind of strong um, culture and a community and a political movement outside of Russia, but for the first time um, that that is starting to build up. So perhaps there is some hope. And I think what Navalny decided ultimately was that by sacrificing himself, that he would become a, a breakthrough message that would reach the Russian population to, to show them how much of a monster their president is. And I think even though he is gone, and I think that message will uh, echo through the country. Uh, lim limited coverage, though, on official state media, of course, uh, this Friday, Lila Jacinto. I think, I mean, for me, the takeaways were the, the, the bravery uh, of the thousands who came up. We had no idea uh, if they would show up for the funeral. Uh, but another takeaway is how little we know about Russia, actually. Uh, and I completely agree with you. You know, we cannot accept any of these figures. You know, what is this 80% of Russians support Putin? You know, where's the clarification uh, uh, on these figures too? You know, Navalny is not covered in the media at all. Yes, it's not. Uh, but, you know, his team has been extremely non-boring, to use his widow's term, uh, in getting on YouTube and getting the message. And what we see today is the message is going out. Can one be optimistic about Russia? That's a very, that's a country that does not spark optimism. Uh, but I mean, what it does show is that Putin is terrified of any opponents, 
despite him having all the levers of control. Uh, that is obvious to Russian people. Uh, Russia is going to go to the polls in, in, in two weeks' time, and, and they're going to have to choose between two Putin stooges. The populace knows what this happens. The real question is, what is the West doing about it? Mm. I mean, we've got a fight against Ukraine, and we can't give them ammunition. Let's talk about that. Navalny's death comes as Europe finds itself scrambling for alternatives to U.S. support uh, for Ukraine. A U.S. that's stuck in election year gridlock. The French convening a summit Monday and agreeing, uh, Lila Jacinto, to join procurement for, uh, for desperately needed ammunition for Ukraine. The scheme was led uh, by uh, the Czech Republic. But the league got buried when a reporter asked Emmanuel Macron how far the West would go. Everything was discussed in a free and direct way tonight. There was no consensus in an official or explicit way on sending troops in on the ground. But in general, nothing should be excluded. We'll do everything so that Russia cannot win this war. Philippe Morchevrolet, was that a gaffe? No, not at all. I think he was right to do that. I mean, for, for, for free reason. I mean, it comes as a reporter's question. So was his plan or just something he said off the top of his head? Uh, that's, that's another question. Another thing. <laughs> yeah, there are two separate questions. Was he right to do it? I think yes, because we needed to be clear on this in international position we have. That there is a moment now that we need to seize, you know, from the French perspective, if we want to be the leader, the leaders of the free world and all that again. Uh, the U.S. are backing off their support uh, on Ukraine. They are backing off. Uh, Trump is saying that he doesn't want to do it again. And Biden can't do it too loudly. So we need to, we, there is a vacuum that we can, you know, occupy. We can be in that vacuum. We can exist as a nation, as a European leader. And I think that's what Macron tries to do. The other thing is that Ukraine indeed needs support. And uh, we need to show Russia that that's the first time we really do it. And it's, we need to do it, to stand in front of Russia in order to show that we are not up for grabs, okay? Without going to war, it is not going to war. It's just, you know, showing muscles, flexing, as you would say in the U.S. And that, that's some, the other question they is... They teach you in martial arts, never make a threat <laughs> unless you can carry it out. Yeah, but we can, who knows? I mean, we've got the nuclear weapon. Eh? Putin is not the only one to have ballistic missiles that can be stopped, even at the last minute. You know, we have it then too, I mean, if we go that path, everyone can go in the nuclear nations. And the other thing, the other question is, did it do it purposefully after a long, you know, consideration? Or did he do it because Navalny was, uh, uh, Zelensky was there? We don't know. That's another question. Sometimes he's willing to please and he's saying things and the other day he says something else. We hope, I hope, that this position will be ours for a long time. Vivian Walt, uh, basically unanimously, all his NATO allies, including the United States, said, uh, uh, no, 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 we're not sending troops to Ukraine. I actually think that's an error. I, I kind of agree with Philippe on this one. I think that faced with somebody like Vladimir Putin, you have to be able to come out and say, we will do everything we can to defeat you. But if, what if it's a bluff? What if it's perceived as a bluff? It might not be. Putin is bluffing There might the actually be a moment in Europe, and I think it was a way for Macron also to basically shake the Europeans and say, this is for real. You know, this is an actual existential threat 
to us. And we have to be prepared for maybe having to go to war, um, which I think after two years is a message that needs to be delivered. It doesn't go down very well here in France. People uh, quick domestically, starting with his main rival from the far right, but also the left, uh, saying, no, uh, we're not sending troops. Well, I mean, his main rival from the far right, uh, Marine Le Pen, is very close uh, to the Kremlin. Of course, she will say this. Uh, I wasn't uh, I, I wasn't expecting this reaction from from the two of you, but I also think uh, you know that was a fine. I mean that that's what you mean when you have this phrase: all options are on the table. For God's sake, that's what that's that's the message you project. However, the reactions to Macron must have made Putin laugh uh, because this is exactly what what Mos Moscow calculates and you know every other member uh, uh, of NATO besides Lithuania I think was rolling back so vociferously this is exactly what Moscow wants to hear. Well Moscow's listening and speaking in his state of the nation speech Vladimir Putin on Wednesday didn't name Emmanuel Macron but certainly seemed to be responding in kind. We also have weapons. They know about this. As I just said, we also have a weapon that can hit targets on their territory. And they should understand that what they're doing now, trying to scare the whole world, it does risk a conflict with nuclear weapons, which means the destruction of civilization. Nico Hines, first meet Philippe Chevrolet and then Vladimir Putin talking about nuclear weapons. Are, are you going to be able to sleep okay tonight? <laughs> <laughs> well, as everyone said, I think that the way NATO was rolled over um, and to have their tummies tickled by Putin uh, rather proves that nothing um, of that kind of escalatory nature is, is on the cards. Um, un unfortunately, you know, I agree. I, I don't understand... NATO aren't familiar with kind of strategic ambiguity. You know, mm. it's absolutely crucial that you keep the other side guessing about what you're going to do. I don't know why we're rushing to say that we're not going to do anything that might actually challenge Russia, because let's not forget, Ru Russia's economy is absolutely in the toilet. You know, OK, they've switched to a war economy. They're managing to produce um, the bullets and the ammunition that they need. But this is a country on its knees. You know, they're vulnerable at the moment. And if, if um, the US and Europe actually took this seriously, you know, the Russians would be in a huge, huge amount of trouble. I, I do see, you know, Schultz's kind of frustration with Macron, I do get to an extent. And I think if you, if you look, it's a kind of, you know, typical Macron, you know, kind of yappy type dog, lots of, lots of bark, but actually, is he gonna deliver anything? And when you look at the numbers, that are being delivered to Ukraine. You know, in terms of military support, I think the latest figures suggest that Germany have pledged something like 70 or 1.7 or 17 billion uh, euros, while the French have only promised 640 million euros. Um, so we're talking about a huge difference, and the, the French might talk a good game on occasion, although let's not forget Macron rushing over to Moscow before this all happened. They talk a good game on occasion, but we need to see France actually stepping up with the real um, hefty volume of weapons and support, and when it comes to it, just sheer cash to help Ukraine win this war. Vivian Wall? 
Yeah, I mean, and also hanging over this whole discussion is this prospect that Trump will be back in the White House. So they've got, you know, seven, eight months to really unite Europe and say we have got to take the lead on this war. We can't rely on the U.S. So you're saying it's not the same Emmanuel Macron as the one who sat at that long table just before uh, February No, and I didn't fault him for doing that either. I think that... uh, he was quite right to do anything he could to try and stop Putin from invading, even though the chances were really small. But um, but now I think that, and let's face it, who other than Macron in Europe is going to do this? But Macron, you know, with the size of his ego and, uh, <laughs> you know, everything else behind him, will step up and basically take that kind of leadership role in the absence of a really faltering U.S. Mm. The camera can be oh so cruel. It's there to remind us that actually 15 years is a long time. No. (laughs) It's indeed time for The World This Week, seven days for Paris-based correspondence. It's a special edition of The World This Week. Confined edition. You can listen, like, and subscribe to The World This Week on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other fine streaming services. From the financial crisis to the Arab Spring, Brexit and the rise of populism, COVID and the rise of the superpower tensions, global warming and the rise of the digital age, these Fridays in this studio have been the place where the Paris Press Corps took stock. Uh, A giant of our craft was the Daily Beast's first foreign editor, Christopher Dickey, who who left us way too soon back in 2020. Here he was in 2017, right after the election of Donald Trump. The basic problem here for anything like the relationship with with Britain or with Mexico or with whether it's bilateral or multilateral is that he essentially sees the world as a collection of zero-sum games. I win, you lose. That's the way it works. Why is his favorite word? Loser. He's a loser, right? He loves to say that. He's obsessed with this idea. And Nico Hines, does it feel like back to the future when you hear Viv Wall talking about broken U.S. politics and the fact that the same Donald Trump could be back soon? Yeah, it's a scary prospect. We're going to go round and round again. And, um, you know, looking back over, over this period, you know, the beginning of, you know, the beginning of you being on this show, 2009, of course, was the year that Obama was inaugurated as president, you know, it's like um, how much has changed and whether or not you can kind of put, you know, I think there's a there's a probably a pretty good argument. Obviously, the financial crisis was part of this, too, but there's a pretty good argument that the election of Obama was what brought us Trump in the first place, you know, is a sort of uh, yin and yang uh, reaction to America kind of going crazy, half of America at least going crazy when Obama was elected and and then we got Trump, you know. So these kind of wheels do move slowly. Um, Obama always liked to say the arc of, uh, you know, the, the arc would bend towards justice, but it might be bending towards another four years of Trump. Yeah, and it's a question about what's the symptoms and what's the what's the cause here. Uh, Vivian Walt, uh, the financial crisis. Uh, uh, totally, I, I would like. I think that was really the pivot point. Also happened to be when you started the show. But if you think about the financial, you're saying crisis, I bring bad luck. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> luckily, you're leaving. But. <laughs> 
But, you know, the financial crisis, which gave rise, or just let's talk about the U.S. for a moment, the Tea Party movement, mm -hmm. from which, you know, grew out of Trump. And most improbably, this, like, multimillionaire from New York City comes along as, like, you know, the hero of the people and mm -hmm. the one that's going to kind of lead them out of, uh, you know, servitude to the big elites. But that has been echoed in so many different places around the world. And I feel like we've spent years around this table talking about the rise of populism, the revolt against the urban elites here in, in France as well. You, you and I were not on Twitter yet in 2009. It was a, it was a very new uh, uh, social medium. And now- everyone, And it was intelligent. And everyone's got their echo chambers now and, this, and, and that's also accompanied this rise. What's your question? This rise of populism <laughs> that, uh, that Vivian Walt is talking oh, about. Oh, absolutely. Across, uh, yes, of course, just across the board, uh, starting with Erdogan uh, in Turkey, uh, still in power. Uh, yes, the, the rise of autocratic uh, uh, democracy, or, you know, call it what you want, uh, but, but, you know, very flawed democracy. That's another arch that I blame you for, really. <laughs> uh, Philippe Moreau Chevrolet, uh, that's right. What's changed in 15 years? Uh, I think the, uh, the confrontation between, between democracies and, you know, authoritarian regimes is the, for me, it's the main aspect of the last 15 years. Uh, that's something that I take from uh, Laurence Rossignol, who is a French senator uh, and a, fem a great feminist and a great uh, intellectual uh, lady. And uh, it's, uh, the, it's an analysis of the world such a, uh, with, you know, these dictatorships, these authoritarian, regi authoritarian regimes fighting against democracies increasingly. And now with the Ukraine invasion, it's even more, uh, it's even stronger. And uh, I'm, uh, that's, for me, that's the, uh, the, 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 the most important Because at the time, we, we, we were having discussions about uh, some people, I wouldn't say journalists admiring Putin, but at least uh, uh, giving him, up until this period of 2007, we've 2008, playing, the benefit of the doubt. We've been playing by this fascination of ours for, you know, strong men. for strong men. Hmm. You know, because it's simple. It seems simple enough to have a strong guy in charge. We, we won't have to bother with anything. He will do the best he can, and it will be good for us. It's like having a father all over again, okay? That's not the solution. And now we are getting more and more aware that the, the price to pay for this kind of simplification is the loss of our freedom, maybe the loss of our lives, the loss of our children's lives, and the loss of everything we know uh, as, you know, good things. You to be the capacity of being able to, to mourn a guy who's dead, the, 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 the fight that this guy wouldn't be dead if the government didn't kill him, by the way. Alexei Navalny. <laughs> Civil liberties, you know, the, the fact to open your mouth on Twitter. A lot of, you know, a lot of uh, Putin supporters on XX, uh, the former Twitter social networks, they wouldn't be able to speak if they were in, living in Russia. They wouldn't be able to tweet about what they tweet about. There they wouldn't be any freedom. They wouldn't exist, these guys, you know? If they are for real and not bots in some troll farms in remote Siberia, they wouldn't be able to do it in an authoritarian regime. You know what you lose. 
but you you know it too late. I couldn't help thinking when he talk, talked about strongmen. In the past 15 years, we also saw the rise of another strongman, which is Xi Jinping, which right. completely changed mm -hmm. the game of how China was as a world actor. Uh, we still do not know how COVID <clears throat> began. Uh, you know, so so what? <laughs> yeah, and the, the, hold on, the the, the 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 sort of the perception of Xi Jinping before and after COVID radically different. Absolutely. He was he was a sort of Winnie the Pooh figure and uh, <laughs> you're signing off now uh, with him taking on, you know, as much power as Mao Zedong uh, did, uh, making sure that, you know, power is completely centralized in China. He oversaw, uh, you know, Xi Jinping talking points, Xi diplomacy, uh, you know, the wolf, gar uh, the wolf uh, warrior diplomacy, okay. all of which has, has, has also raised the stakes in, 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 in geopolitics, access to uh, shipping lanes, mm -hmm. uh, you know, overreacting to border conflicts, uh, you know, increasing China's might in the South China Seas. That's another big one that we've seen in 15 years. Mikko Heinz, is there an argument to be made that uh, the most uh, change, history-changing uh, events of the last 15 years are, are not uh, uh, people, but an invisible virus or coronavirus, uh, COVID, and of course, global warming? Well, the, the, the pandemic, um, it was such a shock. I mean, that's probably the one thing that if you'd said in 2009, um, you know, what was going to happen over the next 15 years. I think the, the coronavirus um, pandemic is the one thing that we wouldn't have got right. I know that there were some clever, clever scientists um, telling people that it was always, there was going to be a pandemic at some point, but we didn't really believe them. Uh, I think that was the one thing that has taken everybody completely by shock. You know, everyone wearing a face mask for two years, not leaving your house, not being allowed to go to the shops. I mean, it was completely science fiction uh, crazy. Um, whereas, of course, at the opposite end of the spectrum, global warming is something we've known about all this time mm. and that has been creeping and creeping and creeping up on us um, and that we're still incapable of dealing with. And I think, uh, you know, what Philippe was talking about, about the rise of the authoritarians, and, and I think an important part of that rise and, and, and looking at Xi as well, is that it's not just something that's happened by coincidence because of the chaos of social media and the chaos of um, global economic cycle. You know, it's a, it's a deliberate tactic. You know, mm. she has got a plan that this is going to be the century where authoritarians take over and the, the era of democracies are going to be on the wane. So, you know, it's, a, it's an actual deliberate plan. And if you, if you look at that plan and the rise of some of those authoritarians and the the weakening of America as a global leader, you know, and you look into that chaos and you think, who is going to be the one that organizes a unified global response to global warming? And it's really hard to be optimistic and see a way that we're all going to come up with a shared vision to save the planet. All right. We, we spoke earlier about uh, the the uh, Gaza criticism at the Berlinale Festival. The world this week will continue to be that safe space where the fourth estate can opinionate, like world politics review editor Judah Grunstein, uh, who knows how to make friends and influence people at the Cannes Film Festival with this 2016 segment. I hate the Cannes Film Festival. 
find it to be a self-absorbed ego trip for narcissists. It's an old club where the same directors are invited year after year to show their films, whether they're good or not. They're almost 99% men. And this year, to even like make it easier to not pay attention to it, you don't even see the the cast and the and the crew anymore, or the cast of the movies, because all the top models from all over the world have invaded La Croisette, and all you see is the the, the pictures of these models who have nothing to do with the movies. So, I, I'm I'm, I'm, <laughs> over, I'm over the conflict. One festival. man won't be going to the movies. <laughs> Has the world changed since 2016, Vivian Walt? Well, the Cannes Film Festival hasn't, so <laughs> <laughs> here you go. All right. This segment uh, made possible thanks to intern extraordinaire Julia Christensen Moreau, uh, from producers Charles Vente, Al Al Alessandro Zinos, uh, Rebecca uh, Gignati, uh, Juliette Laurent, Laura Burlou, and everyone on the other side of the glass. We'll see you Monday for the New Look France 24 debate. Be sure to join Gavin next week at the same time. I want to thank Philippe Morochevrolet, Vivian Walt, Leela Jacinto, Nico Hines in London. Bye for now. <laughs>